series on fatherhood. The industrialist Henry Ford once had a problem in one of his factories where this giant complex generator broke down. Something was broken, but none of the engineers could figure out what the problem was. They were confused. So Ford called up Charles Steinmetz for help. Steinmetz was a giant among scientific and mathematical thinkers in the early 20th century. So Steinmetz came out to the factory and asked for three things, a notebook, a pencil, and a cot. And for two days and two nights, Steinmetz listened to the generator and scribbled computations on his notepad. Finally, on the second night, Steinmetz asked for a ladder. He climbed up on the side of the generator and made a chalk mark on its side. X marks the spot. Climbing back down, he told Ford's engineers to remove the plate he had marked, and there they would find a field coil that needed 16 windings replaced. I don't know what that means. That's just what the story says. They did what he said, and the generator performed to perfection. Of course, Ford was exuberant about this until he received the bill. It was for $10,000, which in today's money would be more than a quarter million dollars. Ford balked at paying such a high price, and he demanded an itemized bill. Is it a pencil, a cot, a piece of paper? So Steinman's response was this, simply. Item one, marking chalk, or I mean making chalk mark on generator, one dollar. Item two, knowing where to mark it, $9,999. Ford paid the bill. We live in a time when there is significant confusion over family issues. Outside the church, we don't even know what a family is anymore. We don't even know what marriage is anymore. We don't even know what boys and girls are anymore. But inside the church, families are struggling too. And since judgment begins at the house of God, this series is not about what's happening outside the church, but what's happening inside here. And many of us look at our families, and if we're honest, they are not flourishing like we'd like them to be. We feel like there should be more, but we don't know what's wrong. Like Ford's engineers, we scratch our heads. We wonder what exactly is the problem here? Why aren't we running on all cylinders? And playing the part of Steinmetz this morning, I'm coming in and saying, gentlemen, more often than not, the chalk mark goes on you. Marriage and parenting are both systems ordered and designed by God. And when a family is not flourishing like it should, then just like we saw last week in Genesis 3, God comes looking for you men and calls you to account. This does not excuse your wife's sins or your children's issues, but God's word is clear on the fundamental order of family life. The buck stops with the men, and this is because you are the head of your home. The title of my message this morning is Responsible Fathers responsible fathers, and my text is really Ephesians 5.23, but we'll be looking, we'll read the two verses around it to get a little bit of context, so we'll read Ephesians 5.22 through 24. I invite you to follow along as I read God's holy and authoritative word. 
Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father God, it's you that gives us this word, gives us your word, and you did so because you want us to understand it. Still, we are needy. So through the way that your son has opened up to you, we come boldly now before your throne of grace to ask that you would also give your Holy Spirit this morning that we might have illumination in our understanding. Speak, O Lord. We invite you, in Jesus' name, amen. Our text declares that a husband is the head of his wife, a father is the head of his home, and headship has to do with authority. There's no getting around that. Some try and argue that head here refers to a source, as in the head of a river. Others have argued that it means prominent, as in the partner that sticks out, kind of like a senior partner in a law firm who gets his his name on the sign, the law offices of Scrooge and Marley. Uh, But the context demands the more obvious. The headship does in fact have to do with authority. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? Well, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So headship has to do with authority, but that's a problem. It's a problem because we have a problem with authority. We live in a day that sees traditional authority structures as oppressive, and so we question and we resist them. This is a modern problem, but it's not only a modern problem, it's also an ancient problem. Adam and Eve questioned and resisted God's authority, and we've been questioning and resisting authority ever since. We question and resist civil authority. We question and resist pastoral authority. We question and resist fatherly authority, and in so doing, we question and resist God's authority. Romans 13, one and two, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resist what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. That is a prophetic word for our day. Now, by this point, it's likely you're beginning to feel uncomfortable. Your spidey senses are tingling. Your authority alarm is ringing. You're wondering, what am I going after with all this authority talk? And I'll tell you what I'm going after. No hidden agendas today. I'm going after you men. That said, I also realize some of you are uncomfortable in all this because you had domineering parents or you had a domineering pastor and here I am poking at a wound you carry with you wherever you go and if that's you I hope you can hear this I am sincerely sorry for the tragedy that you have experienced for the abuse of authority is a tragedy and is a sin 
Colossians 3.21 commands fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And 1 Peter 5.3 commands pastors not to lord their authority over those entrusted to their care. So there is no excuse for the abuse of authority by parents or by pastors, and I'm not about to make an excuse for any of that. But if the authority or the abuse of authority is a tragedy, so too is abdication of it, and so too is the abrogation of it, the wholesale rejection of it. In God's created order, authority is a thing, and it's a thing that matters. It's not everything, but it is a thing, and it was a thing before the fall, and it will be a thing after we're in heaven. Ultimately, authority is a power to be wielded for the good of others, not abused at the expense of others. Uncle Ben warned his nephew Peter Parker, a.k.a. Spider-Man, very well when he said, with great power comes great responsibility. Or, as my wife is faithful to remind me, that's not actually original to Uncle Ben, it came from Jesus, Luke 12, 48, to whom much is given, much will be required. So, coming full circle, a husband is the head of his wife, a father is the head of his home, and headship has to do with authority. We've got to deal with that. But it doesn't only have to do with authority. Biblical headship has to do with authority, but not just authority, not solely authority, and this is where all the legitimate gripes against headship and authority come from. It's like this, if you boil a soup down too much, you burn it and it's not worth eating. Likewise, if you reduce headship down to just authority, you lose most most of what makes a head worth following. Headship has to do with authority, but it has a lot more to do than just with authority. And this drives us to the question today, which is, what exactly is biblical headship? That's the question we need to answer today. What exactly is biblical headship? And since you asked, thank you for asking, I would say it's at least three things. Each building on the prior. First, headship is representation. Second, headship is responsibility. And third, headship is finally rule. We begin first, though, with headship is representation. Before ruling... Headship is representation. A head is a representative. He has authority, he makes decisions, but he's not a dictator, he's a representative. To understand this, we need to look at two important examples of headship in scripture, two formative examples of headship in scripture. The first is given to us right in our passage. For the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. The first and the formative example of headship is that of Christ as head of the church. Now, as evangelical Christians, we are accustomed to talking about the substitutionary death of Jesus. We say, I'm forgiven my sins here and now because Jesus died for me some 2,000 years ago right outside Jerusalem over there. That's the substitutionary death of Jesus. I'm forgiven because Jesus died in my place. Now, speaking as the devil's advocate for a minute, literally, what kind of sense does that make? Why does God forgive you here and now because Jesus died there and then? 
If the police knew that someone stole a thingamabob and they decided they don't have to arrest the thief, they just have to arrest someone, that's unjust. If God says, I'm mad at all the sin on the earth, but I don't have to kill the guilty, I just have to kill someone, that's unjust, it's wicked. And so if you think Jesus died for you as your substitute means he died instead of you, then you believe in an unjust gospel. But the Bible doesn't teach this. It says Jesus died as your covenant head, as your representative. Let me get at this another way. There are two kinds of substitutes. There are two kinds of substitutes. The first is like a substitute in a basketball game. I don't know hardly anything about sports, but I came from Indiana, and so I do know a little bit about basketball. And there are substitutes in basketball game. When the ref blows the whistle, you sub in for a teammate, you go in in his place. That's one kind of substitute, but that's not the kind of substitute Jesus is. This is not what we mean when we talk about the substitutionary death of Jesus. It's not like he came into the cross for you and you came out. The other or the second kind of substitute is like when we elect someone to represent us in Congress. Instead of you going to Washington, instead of you participating in committees, instead of you voting, he goes in your place as your substitute. So much so so that when he votes, you vote. And it's in this sense that Jesus is your substitute. He's your representative. So that when he died, you died. And as your representative, there's no injustice when he dies for you. The Bible talks about this everywhere. Romans 6 says that you were baptized into his death. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, when Jesus died, you died. When Jesus was buried, you were buried. And when Jesus rose, you rose. This is why you are forgiven, because Jesus died as your representative head. This is the way God gets us out of sin, and that's because this is the way we got ourselves into sin. And that brings us neatly to the second important informative example of headship in scripture. The first is Jesus. He's the head of the church, it's savior. The second is Adam, the head of humanity. In the garden, he represented all of us. So that when he sinned, you and I sinned. And this is why it is not unjust for you to be condemned as a sinner before you can even conceptualize what sin is. Little Johnny down in the nursery, do we have a Johnny in the nursery right now? I hope not, because I'm not talking about anyone in particular. Little Johnny down in the nursery is running around hitting all the kids with a play hammer. He's a mean little brat. He's a sinner, even though he doesn't know what sin is yet. And this is because we were all conceived in sin. Psalm 51.5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. How did this happen? Because you sinned in Adam. When he sinned, you sinned. And in this, he represented you well. I mean, accurately. If you had been there in the garden, you would not have done any better than him. You would have taken the fruit and ate of it. 
This is how we all got into the mess of sin, all of us, we got into sin through the first Adam, and we get out of sin through the second Adam, or the last Adam, that's what scripture calls Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Romans 5. In the first Adam we are condemned, but in the second Adam, Christ, we are forgiven. In the first we die, in the second we live, Romans 5, 17. For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reign through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So you are either represented by Adam or you are represented by Jesus. Both are the heads of their own people. And this is how he who knew no sin, Jesus, could be made sin. And we who are sinners can be made the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Friends, this is the gospel. This is how we are saved. And all Christ's church should say, amen. amen. Now, all this leads us finally back to our text today, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Guys, this means as head of your home, uh, head of your home does not mean you are boss of your home. Head of the home does not mean you get your way. And head of the home does not mean that you make all the really big decisions for the family. Head of the home is first and centrally representation. You represent your family before God. Not totally, but truly. Not absolutely, but actually. Now I'll show you what this looks like in practice. Guys, if you wanna know how to do this, the best, the most instructive example I know of in scripture, uh, outside of, uh, I guess, several passages we could look at of Jesus himself, but a really formative, concise uh, example for us is found in Job. In Job chapter one, we read, verses four and five, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job, would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Guys, in this text, Job is not offering sacrifices because he did something wrong. And it's not even because he knows with certainty that his children did something wrong. But he offers sacrifices because his children may have sinned. They might have. And this practice of his is cited for us as an example of his righteousness. Scripture doesn't say he was such a bad parent that he had to make sacrifices continually to cover his failures. No, he faithfully represented his family before God and this caused God to say to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on earth, blameless and righteous. Men, this is what the head of a family does. He represents his family, strengths and weaknesses, victories and failures, grace and sins before God. And I would suggest to you men, this happens first and foremost in your prayer life. One day, one day you will actually stand before God and give an account for your family. Just as Adam was called to give an account for Eve, you will be called to give an account for your family. But until that day, 
Until that day, you stand before God in prayer for your family. You give an account now as you intercede on their behalf. Now, just by way of personal confession here, I was freshly convicted by this as I prepared this week. So, I'm up here speaking forcefully, because I'm speaking to guys, and guys are dense, and so we need to be spoken to forcefully. (laughs) Amen, see? But I also speak as one who's convicted. And that's where I think this application of this starts. If you have not been faithfully representing your family before God, if you have not been praying for them, and I'm not talking about routinely, I'm talking about, I am talking about representatively. I'm saying, do you hear Job's heart when he says, my kids may have sinned? What did they do when they sinned? They cursed God in their heart. Oh, I'll offer a sacrifice on their heart. If you are not representatively before God on your hands and knees for your family's sake, the first thing you need to do is confess your sin. You are not taking up headship for your home. And gather your family and look them in the eyes and tell them, I am sorry. I'm not doing that. That's what I did this week. And then my littlest ones tried to talk me out of being sorry, and others started to talk about cookies, and the girls just tried to encourage me, and Joshua kind of shrugged his shoulders, but I did it. (laughs) And I confessed to the guys in leadership team the same sin this week. Guys, it begins with confession. That's the place to start, and then start praying. Job offered sacrifices and stood before God. So guys, if there is some problem in your family, and there is, and you'd like to see it fixed, be it a problem with your wife or a problem with your kids, of course there's problems with you, but let's just say you're focused on something else at the moment. Before you talk to them, take 30 days to pray about it. Take two weeks to pray about it. Represent them before God before you go and try to address the issue. And here's the, here's the happy thing you'll see happen often enough. God will part the clouds, he will make a way, and all of a sudden you'll find there's an open door for you to talk about this very naturally. That happens all the time. Not, I say all the time figuratively, not all the time, not every time, but it happens a lot. When you start praying for it, God makes a way. Or you find him saying, no, that's not the focus right now. This is. And then you start praying for that, and God makes a way. It doesn't happen every time, but it happens a lot. Start praying. Headship is representation first. Second, headship is responsibility. Second, headship is responsibility. To be head of your home is to take responsibility for your family thoroughly, just as Christ assumed responsibility for his, including for things he did not do. Christ is the head of the church, its savior. So a husband should be willing to do the same for his wife and his children. He is to be a head accordingly. This is headship. 
Now, I've shared the following illustration before, at least at the men's retreat last year, maybe somewhere else before, but it's one of my favorites. It's about one of my favorite presidents, and so I want to share it. So can I do that? Yes. Of course I can. You're very gracious people. One of the things that made Teddy Roosevelt such an effective leader is he took responsibility when others wouldn't. I told my kids last night, I'm gonna tell a story about Teddy Roosevelt tomorrow, and they said, oh yeah, we know which one, and they guessed and they guessed correctly, so. But I love this one. For example, when he was president, he went hiking in the Appalachian Mountains. I love a president that'll go hiking, that's awesome. He, he was strong and young and different than presidents we have nowadays. And looking over a cliff, <laughs> he saw a bird's nest on the cliff side. And so Roosevelt decides he wants a close-up picture of that nest. So he ties a rope around his ankles and he orders his Secret Service agent to lower him down the side of the cliff because this is over 100 years ago and if you want a close-up picture, you literally had to get close up to something, right? So the president, the president of the United States is dangling over the side of a cliff. He gets his picture and he says, pull me up. And the agent can't do it. He doesn't have the strength to pull. President was a big guy. He doesn't have the strength to pull. He can't do it. So the President of the United States, he's just dangling there by his feet on the cliffside. He's hanging some 30 feet over a, a roaring river running below him. What's he supposed to do? Well, Roosevelt knows exactly what to do. He yells back up, cut the rope. Now, can you imagine this poor Secret Service agent? I mean, first he gets the president stuck over the side of a cliff, and now the president's saying, President of the United States, not ex-president, still President of the United States, and he's saying, cut the rope! <laughs> and drop the president into... So he freezes, he doesn't do it, he can't do it. How do I, what, what, what am I supposed to do? I don't, no one trained me about what to do with this. I, can, I don't know how to do this. Roosevelt gets impatient, he was an impatient man, he yells up again, cut the rope! The agent won't do it, so what's Roosevelt do? He takes out his own knife and cuts his own rope. Agent flips backwards, freaks out, finds a path, runs downstairs, or downstairs, runs down the path into the gorge, finds the president lying at the water's edge. He's soaked, he's bleeding, he shakes the president's seat of his life. Ro the Roosevelt uh, sits up and says, my, wasn't that just bully? <laughs> People followed Roosevelt, not because he was in charge, but because he took responsibility. And this is a point I'm gonna keep coming back to, guys. Authority flows to those who takes responsibility. We'll get there. Well, let's, let's just talk about it for a minute. This is what Jesus taught. Mark 10, 43 and 44. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. What are you doing when you become a servant or a slave to others? Think about it. You are washing feet you did not dirty. You are cleaning tunics you did not soil. Servants take responsibility, and they take responsibility for things that they didn't do. Jesus took responsibility for things he did not do, and men take responsibility for things they did not do. Usually, when a guy comes into counseling with me, his perspective is, yeah, I'm talking about marriage counseling. He's like, yeah, you know, his wife has a list of what's wrong. And he's got, well, you know, like she's got some problems. I've got some problems. We need to work it out a little bit. And in one sense, he's right. Both have problems, both have sin. But what he fails to grasp is that being head means he assumes responsibility for it all. 
This is the single most difficult thing for me to get across to men. He insists, well, I didn't rack up the credit card bill. I didn't pack the schedule to, so as to cause anxiety. I didn't obsess over the kids. I don't harbor bitterness. I'm not responsible for all that. The irony here is that he's nevertheless fine with Jesus, his head, taking responsibility for things that Jesus didn't do but that he did. His whole salvation depends on Jesus taking responsibility for things that Jesus didn't do. That's what the cross is. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We say the most important thing that ever happened in the world is Jesus bearing our sin. Jesus taking responsibility for things he didn't do. Why? Well, he did it because he's the head of the church, his body, its savior. And likewise, men, we are to be the head of the home in exactly the same way. We take the responsibility. Now, what this does that guys don't like is it eliminates the blame game. Guys like playing the blame game. It eliminates that. There's no saying, well, I warned her not to do that. I told her it would be stressful. I told her I wasn't sure it would work out. I told her it would be too much, but she insisted, so finally I gave in. I'm not a dominating husband. I, you know, I don't want to be one of those. So, but if she had listened to me, I would have spared her all that anxiety, all that pain. No, guys. This is another place where our father Adam represented us well. When God came into the garden and asked what happened, Adam said, the woman you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate of it. Guys, you are not the victim. You are the man. And men take responsibility. So act like men. This is not her fault. This is not her problem. This is our fault and this is our problem. This isn't your kids' issues. This is a family issue. Many husbands don't know why their wives don't respect them. They don't know why their kids don't weigh their counsel heavily. They don't know why they're not honored in their home. And the reason is, is because they don't take responsibility. Now, honestly, guys, this is not that hard to grasp, is it? It's just hard to do. And it's hard to do because it requires humility. The stone wall us guys run into again and again and again, hitting our heads in again and again and again and leading our families is our own pride. So for families to flourish, Men have to humble themselves, trash their excuses, and start taking responsibility. That's headship. That's servant leadership. And like I said earlier, authority flows to these kinds of leaders who take responsibility. Scripture teaches us this, Philippians 2, 4 through 11. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, humbled himself by taking the form of a servant, a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself even more by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Guys, authority flows to those who take responsibility. And this leads us finally to point number three, headship is rule. Headship is rule. I have to be relatively brief here, but there are two things I want to say about authority. First, that there are two kinds of authority that a man can have in his home. There are two kinds of authority that a man can have in his home. He always has one of them simply by being the head of his home, by virtue of being the father, the, the, the husband. Um, but he may or may not have the second. So you can think about it this way. There is the authority of having a checkbook and a checking account. You own it. It's in your name. Your name is in the upper left hand of the corner. You have the full authority to write checks from that account. And that's one kind of authority. The other is the kind of authority that comes from having a lot of money in that account. That comes with a different kind of authority. The former is simply a positional authority. A husband by virtue of being a husband, a father by virtue of having children is the head of a home. And scripture says that this position should be honored. His wife should respect him. His children should obey him. The second kind of authority though is like moral authority. So you're not just the head of the home, you're a good head. You're a loving husband. You are a caring father. You're a head with a heart. You've made significant deposits into the account. Now the sad reality is there are a lot of men who want to write checks simply because their name is on the account, not because they've made a good many deposits in it. I mean, this is the kind of leadership we see in the secular world all the time. Yeah, you gotta do what I say. I'm in control. Why? Because I'm in control. I'm in charge. I'm the president. I'm the president. Because it's a position. Not because we respect you, not because we like you, not because we feel like you care for us, but because you're in a position of authority. You fought teeth and nails and toes and claws and everything to get there so you could be in charge. And we're supposed to listen to you because you're in charge. That's positional authority. But it should not be so in the home. A good father should make many good deposits into his family. What kind of deposits? Not all deposits are the same, so let me give you a list. Giving flowers is good. That's a deposit. Going out and playing catch with your kid, that's a deposit. But these offer a quick return. The interest is low. It's not bad, there's something, but it's small. Heart-to-heart talks and taking an interest in what they're interested in, that's more costly, but that gives a higher return. But you know, often the most significant investments don't offer immediate returns. It's the compounding interest over time. You know what I'm talking about. And that's the kind of deposit you make when you represent your family before God and take responsibility for them. Those wind up putting a good bit of money in the account. So men, let's aim to have authority that's moral that's based on the fact that we've been depositing a good deal into the account. Second thing I wanna say about authority is a word on the use of authority, the use of authority. 
a man, that a man is ahead of his home does not mean that it is his way or the highway. I said earlier, it does not mean that he's the boss. Men, you are not the boss man. Jesus is the boss man. Uh, let me try that again. Men, you are not the boss man. Jesus is the boss man. Amen. Amen. Wives, feel free on that one. Yeah, that's a good one. You, know, you, you don't have to elbow your husband. And, you know, amen. Yes, right. And this is right in our text. Christ is the head of the church. Similarly, 1 Corinthians 11.3, we read, Christ is the head of every man. So men are in authority, but we are first under authority. And this informs how we use the authority we've been given. A man's, get this guys, a man's authority exists first and foremost, centrally and primarily, to align his family as best he can with Jesus' will, not his own. A man's authority exists to align his family as best he is able with Jesus' will, not his own. This is what husbands and dads should use their authority for. Not some kind of macho, man, man, maniacal monarchy of I get this and I want this for dinner and I like my house like this and kids be quiet, I deserve a little peace and quiet here and blah, 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 blah. That's not gospel. That's not servant leadership. Rather, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without sprinkle or, or without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Guys, that's headship. You use your authority to make your wife more biblically beautiful. And the tool you use is the word of God. Likewise, fathers, same passage, a little further down, right? Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Dads, this is ruling well. You use your authority to bring your kids up, to raise them up in godly wisdom and godly behavior. And again, your tool is the word of the Lord. So men, how are you doing at that? It's not just if you are in the word, but are you leading from the word? Are you washing away your wife's anxieties with the promises of God? Are you taking responsibility for the discipling of your children? Are you ordering your home, not according to your priorities, but according to God's? In conclusion, what is male headship? First, it's representation. Second, it's responsibility. And third, it is rule. This is how a man leads his home. And what it requires, all of it, is humility. A good head is a humble head. So gentlemen, hear me on this. This is the hardest thing I'm going to say to you today. You must be humbled down to the ground. You must be. Otherwise, you will do all of this in your own strength, and you'll always say, but she, but they, 
You'll never take responsibility and you won't work, and I mean work, to align your family to God's will. If you have not been humbled to the ground, you will not be a servant. And if you're not a servant, then you are not a leader in God's kingdom. So men, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we want you to be our father and that. You are our Father in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so as Father, we submit to your word. We submit to your instruction and your discipline. This morning you have instructed us and many of us have been disciplined by your word. And we find your discipline to sting and yet it is good. It is the discipline of a loving Father. And so God, I pray that you would humble us under this disciplining word, this instructive word, and that God, you would charge us fathers, you would change us fathers, to be a father as you are a father, to be a head as Christ is the head of his church, and that just as the church flourishes under the sweet saving lordship of Jesus Christ, so the families of this church would flourish under the loving and responsible headship of husbands and fathers who are under Jesus Christ. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen and amen.